Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. If you look back through grape genetic charts, you'll see that many of our favorite varieties today are related to a select few handfuls of ancestors. Several of our most popular varieties can trace their parentage or grandparentage to Gouet Blanc, a grape variety that's rare today but was once extremely popular in the Middle Ages. A few other ancient varieties, Traminer, Muscat, and Pinot, are repeatedly found high up on the family trees of so many of our favorite varieties and Traminer is most likely a grandparent of Riesling. Riesling shares a parent with Romorantin, Melone, Chardonnay, Gamay, and Ferment, making them all fairly close relatives. Riesling has many children as well, mostly because Riesling was used as a parent by several viticulturalists at Geisenheim who worked towards creating stronger Riesling hybrids in the late 1800s. Their work was fueled in part to combat phylloxera, and also to find hardier grape varieties that could sustain cold temperatures. Riesling was probably born sometime between 1300 and 1500, and by the late 1400s, Riesling was most likely popular in the Rheingau, which is also its probable region of origin. Within a few centuries, it was the dominant grape in Germany. By the late 1800s, Riesling, especially Mosel Riesling, was one of the world's most sought-after wines. And its popularity helped spread through world fairs and global exhibitions. You could even find bottles of German Riesling for sale rather easily in the Midwest of the United States in the late 1800s. Riesling's popularity and quality made it one of the first grape varieties to successfully jump continents. It was brought to Australia by Lutheran exiles in the 1850s and has since continued to play an important part in Aussie whites. Riesling has a few unique attributes that work to its favor. It can be made in so many styles of sweetness while still attaining acidity. It can age far longer than most white wines. Its shelf life in the fridge is usually much longer than other whites once it's opened and it is one of the few grapes known to mutate from white to red. Riesling grows well in cool areas. It can make special wines in many different places in the world, 
and it can make pleasant Botrytis wines as well. It was also a favorite among the monks at the Benedictine Abbey of Maximin along the Saar River. Each of those lucky monks got a daily ration of three liters. Napoleon privatized the vineyards at the Abbey, but who's making wine there today? Stay tuned to find out. It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content, as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at OffsetPartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T partners with an s.com offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand carl von schubert of maximum grunhaus on our show today hello sir how are you I'm fine, thank you. Very nice to have you here. So where did you grow up? Well, I grew up all my life at uh, Grünhaus, at the wine growing estate. I was born in Trier, and uh, that's my home. I never left it. I'm very fortunate to be there, and uh, I love it. It's uh, the house also of my, my kids and my grandchildren. So it's a very important place of the family and all the tradition around. I learn every single day. I'm at home, more details about my home, uh, more details about the history of my home. And uh, yeah, this makes you love and appreciate the, the place where you are uh, more and more every day. So you grew up in the Ruver? Yes, exactly. At the wine estate? I grew up, uh, grew up in the Ruver at the wine estate. Of course, the first uh, 10, 14 years, I was uh, not so much involved into wine. And those times my father said, at uh, lunch or dinner, we don't speak about business. So uh, he, I was, of course, uh, loving to play. It's, it's a perfect playground to play with your, with your friends uh, all around. And um, very soon, my most important hobby became photography. So I learned the details about my, my town and my, my, uh, my estate about taking photos and uh, taking photos of grapes and the pickers and the sellers and the wild animals all around. So when I recognized uh, uh, that it was clear that my two sisters never would uh, uh, be a wine, uh, wine grower, I was quite sad because my ideal would be being a photographer. For photography, we, I could really think about being a photographer. And um, uh, there was a certain distance at the beginning between myself and the wine, of course, because uh, at the beginning, I wasn't allowed to drink wine, and then uh, uh, it, it took me quite a time until I really appreciated wine. 
Um, so uh, being outside, taking photos was just uh, what I loved. And uh, then being inside my dark room and developing the photos was just the other side of what I really like to do. How long had your family owned the property? My The family had been the longest uh, time of the recorded history in the hands of a Benedictine monastery, so more than 1,300 years. Uh, then when Napoleon uh, came into our area and uh, took away all the possession of uh, churches and abbeys, the so-called secularization, he made place for many estates to be uh, bought by private families. So my great-great-grandfather, he uh, bought the estate 1882. So he was in, in, involved into the steel business. The family uh, owned uh, coal mines in the nearby Hunsrück Mountains. And they were quite, the family von Stumm uh, was known to build organs. So they built about 200 years, very pretty li little organs all over the place. So that's another real uh, interesting thing uh, about our home area, the Stumm organs. Um, so my great great father came in 1882. He bought the estate. He invested a lot to, uh, he built new cellars, uh, he planted new vineyards. He uh, uh, extended the farm buildings and uh, he made everything uh, safe that you could really plant your vineyards. He, we, he extended the beef uh, and dairy cattle uh, herds, so we have the natural fertilizer, the manure, and he was investing heavily. And we still profit from his investments because he wasn't dependent on the yields of, of, of the vineyards. He had enough money, so he was an in industrial who love to have a wine growing estate and uh, that's a story you can uh, see today there are many people be rich people coming to to the wine country and uh, are willing to invest into uh, those estates so he was not educated as a wine grower but of course he had uh, he hired excellent people as a cellar master and vineyard manager and uh, yeah then his only uh, his, his oldest uh, daughter she married a general in the german army Conrad von Schubert, and they got a child called Karl, like me, my grandfather. He was diplomat and uh, was uh, had to leave when Hitler came in. And my father uh, was in the war, and after war he studied uh, in Geisenheim uh, a little bit of viticulture, and he didn't complete his, his studies because he had to take over. So my father was the first living of his whole life in the estate and having some education, and I'm now here having more education like uh, studying agricultural science uh, i wrote my thesis about these economics of uh, steep hill wine growing so it became clear to you that you were going to take over the estate in terms of the winemaking and you went to school for that yes 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 yeah uh, my father convinced me and uh, well he was quite uh, an authority so uh, there was no way to of escaping so so he was an authority and he convinced you that your yeah time he convinced me and um, I think uh, my studies were interesting. I, I loved uh, natural uh, history and natural science. So studying agricultural science was interesting for me, just starting with all the chemistry and, and all the uh, biological facts and so on. And uh, the second part of my study was, was more uh, economics. And I wrote my, my thesis for the diploma about the uh, wine law, the new German and the new European wine law. So this was interesting for me. And at the end, my professor told me that he wanted me to write his thesis and he wanted me as his spiritual son. He had two daughters and I would. So we had a time of, uh, which is incredible if I look back, of three years of traveling together, 
through all the major steep hill wine growing areas of Europe, like Italy, Alto Adige, like Austria, like Switzerland, and of course the whole of Germany. And uh, I prepared my my thesis by interviewing many, many, many dozens of uh, dedicated wine growers. Your professor encouraged you to take a worldwide lens at the kind yeah, of work yeah, that you would exactly. end up doing. I think, and when I planned, I planned uh, to, to get a, a, a PhD, uh, this was not in my plans. But uh, after all, it was interesting because uh, just gathering the pure experience of dedicated wine growers, and uh, they never thought me being a, a competitor. They always thought a young man who is interested, who comes from the trade, he... They really, there was nobody who uh, was trying to not tell me everything I was asking them about. So uh, this was, I was very uh, well received together with my professor. It was a funny little, little team we were. Uh, he loved to drink a lot of wine. And uh, when uh, we just headed from one tasting to the other, he slept in the back of the car and then had to, had to, had to concentrate, it, concentrate a lot. And um, yeah, there were some some very renowned people like Lenz Moser, you know, the Austrian uh, um, wine grower, who wrote a lot about uh, new techniques of viticulture. I was uh, able to see him several times, and he was very uh, he liked me a lot, and it was uh, a gentleman who taught me a lot. He did a lot of work with trellising, like how to train vines with different trellising. And what impressed me mo most. He, uh, it's difficult to, to insulate, he looked at the different plants growing in the vineyard and he uh, was uh, one, one of the, what's the first seeing the effect of s several weeds or, or natural greens, how they affected the growth and the fertility of the, of the vine. Like a cover crop, he was one of the first. Yeah, exactly. He was really uh, one of the first uh, looking at many different sorts of cover crops. And that's what's standard uh, today in our area. We, we do a lot of different cover crops or we know the importance of a cover crop for the fertility of the, of the soils, uh, preventing erosion and all those things. So this was for me extremely important. Just how you can influence your vines by the cover crop and uh, how you can choose the right cover crop or how you can just, just uh, work it uh, all over the, day, the normal year. So a three-year tour of sort of soaking up wisdom from yeah. both old-timers and innovators. Yeah, that's, that, that was uh, very interesting. And um, it gave me many, many different uh, views uh, on how to, to do, uh, how to grow vine and really widened my sight on, on viticulture. This was just the most interesting time of learning in my whole life. You think it set a basis for you? It was a very important base. I, I feel, still feeling nowadays that I still profit about all this. Uh, this those three years, my, my, my young wife didn't like it. Um, myself being weeks uh, away in, in a car and, 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 and touring the wine countries of different European growing areas. But uh, for me, it was really, although he was a little bit crazy, but, but, but very interested, it was for me uh, really very rewarding. So you get back to the Ruver, and what's the Ruver like? I mean, as a growing area, how should I understand it? My grandmother always was saying the Ruver is the appendix of the Mosel. It's just a very tiny little creek. When I started, the Mosel counted about 12,500 hectares of vineyards, and the Ruver was about 300. Now it's down to 180 hectares only. It's, it's a small little part of it. So it's... Um, Ruva is something special. If you taste and compare the wines, 
And if you compare uh, wine growers who do uh, ferment with wild yeast, so that you have a base to compare. You can't com compare wines which have been made by cultured yeast. As you do. You do native We, we uh, With Riesling is done uh, 100% by, by wild yeast. Then you see that Ruva always has, um, in my eyes, and I'm not being only positive for, for Ruva, I'm critical, has the most elegant wines, has wines which, uh, which express more the minerality than any other uh, part of the Mosel River. And uh, of course, if it's very rainy and it's cold, Mosel, the middle Mosel has more Auslese and more body in the wines and um, uh, gets more Bern Auslese and, and higher predicates uh, without any doubt. But uh, we tend to have a climate change and this makes us being the coldest part of the whole growing area. And, but still, we are happy to have the refined wines. Today we showed a 2011 cabinet and 2011 up and those wines still, they get a lot of structure, they get a lot of minerality. And if uh, in those years like 2011 or maybe 2003, there is a certain lack of acidity or a lower acidity, then we have all the structure given by the blue slate soil and red slate soil of the both uh, of our major sites. We get a lot of uh, backbone to the wines and they, they have uh, a perfect structure and they, they get more depth and uh, they're not sweet or only alcoholic. They have all those elegance and which makes them uh, digestible and easier to drink and easier to appreciate and longer living. And at the same time that it's a fairly cool valley in terms of temperature, you also have some steep slopes. So I imagine sometimes there's water stress in terms of the vineyard itself. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Especially in our Abzberg vineyard with Puslate soil, it can become very dry. Uh, we are not allowed to irrigate, but uh, uh, it becomes very dry. But, uh, you know, the last 20, 25 years when we built up some, uh, we had always invested uh, heavily into the soils like manure, all sorts of compost to make it uh, as, as, as a nice place as possible for the, for the vines. And now we don't uh, do the uh, vicious circle like uh, working the soils, and uh, um, which is uh, taking off some uh, organic material and then bringing it back with uh, huge quantities of manure. Now we have a good percentage, up to 8% of organic material in those soils. And we have the cover crop, which we try not to to touch only mow and and, and keep it keep it untouched and then we have a good base that uh, that the uh, in very dry years the young even young wines can survive easily so you have three designated vineyards that are adjacent to each other and how should i understand the differences between those three so the main direction of the whole vineyard is uh, southeast uh, the smallest portion is called budaberg Mainly meaning it's just the lay clergy's uh, vineyard, which pr produced as almost 100% east directed uh, simpler wines, but has the same underground like Abzberg Blue Slate. And um, it's only one hectare of size, quite steep. And uh, now more and more it, it, it uh, gained quality. We don't have Riesling with lower, uh, with higher yields there. So we're still talking about 40 hectoliters per hectare. So Bruderberg have a lot of character. But we try only to make one wine per year. So it's just Budaberg QBA, regardless of must wait. And it's just, it comes out that many youngsters love those wines. In Munich, for example, there's quite a circle of young uh, restaurateurs who want to buy all the Budaberg, which I don't allow them to do because we have only 4,000 bottles a year. That's, that's not enough. 
Then this, uh, the uh, slope turns to be to plain south to the Abzberg. The same soil, blue slate, very steep and very warm, and just giving us the best possible qualities in our in our vineyards. Abzberg has about 14 hectares of size. Partly it's so steep that you can't work with machinery. That's uh, negative, but on the other side, it's uh, re rewarding you with very good qualities. And if you go up the hill and uh, continuously, you have a, a shift between the uh, blue slate soil and the red slate soil. So Herrenberg mainly, Herrenberg soils mainly compose out of red slate, meaning that uh, the soils, uh, the red slate is, is softer as a stone. It builds up uh, higher layers of fertile uh, soil on the rock. And then you have soils which have a better potential to retain water. And um, Herrenberg is uh, a guarantee if you have very dry years that uh, the, uh, the vines uh, live there perfectly uh, without any water stress. So it's an ingenious mix of risks. In very rainy years, Abzberg is, is top and has the best qualities. In very dry years, more or less Herrenberg takes over and guarantees the continuous growth of the vines. And these are predominantly planted to Riesling. Yeah. Well, we started uh, almost 10 years ago, no, 11 years ago, I could have told you we are 100% Riesling. But um, uh, there was a cousin of mine who said, I love your Riesling, but I can't stand the acidity. So we are thinking, our cellar master and myself, we were thinking about uh, some alternative grape variety and we, it was clear that Pinot Blanc would be the right one. Pinot Blanc, many, many different clones from Alsace, from France, uh, and from Germany. And we started with the first hectare planting in 2004. In the same time, I met an old gentleman who declared himself to be a cooper from the neighboring village, half a mile away. And he said, Mr. von Schubert, why don't you take advantage of your natural source, your oak trees? We own about 150 acres of oak trees. And they are just in the right age, between 150 and 180 years old. And he kept constantly buying some, some, some oak trees and never knew exactly what he was doing. And then he led me to his house and showed me his, uh, all his tools uh, to, of cooperage. And I wasn't quite sure, but I said, okay, we should start with a few cars, just, just do your work. And uh, I had the idea to produce a fooder cask, a fooder cask of 1,000 liter out of new oak and having it toasted. Uh, medium, medium toasted. So at first, building a, a cask is fascinating. We spent there many, many afternoons, my wife and, and the cellar master and me, looking how the cask was built. Then uh, our idea was to have um, a Pinot Blanc with uh, a touch of new oak. If I'm kidding, I would say just, it's just a gentle kiss on your cheek of new oak and not a French kiss of new oak. So just giving a little bit warm home touch of new oak so uh, we ferment one cask uh, one new cask with pinot blanc and then we have another three or four casa cask which are a little bit older so for the first uh, three years uh, we want to extract new oak by uh, pinot blanc and then after the third year for the fourth year it's a perfect home for riesling so this helps us on one side produce um, a, a nice pinot blanc with a touch of, of oak and on the other side, after three years, we have perfect Riesling casks. So but, you break it in with a Pinot Blanc. You break in the food. Yeah, well, breaking in is too hard as a work. It's just a soft and gentle uh, extraction of, of tannin for the Pinot Blanc. And this was, was our uh, all about our idea of Pinot Blanc, a little bit like a 
Burgundian wine, not as uh, concentrated as a Chardonnay, but a gentle, very nice alternative to Riesling, which can age. So the wines don't taste well the first year. You need one, uh, two to three years until they are on the peak. And what do you think that German oak, the local oak around your valley, what do you think that that brings to the expression? Is that a little bit of a different structural, textural, or exactly, flavor exactly. taste? Um, uh, I was uh, very much attracted by a Pinot Blanc, which has more character than the usual Pinot Blanc you will find in our area. The normal Pinot Blanc uh, is uh, it's made uh, out of a vineyard which has a high yield, like, like 80, 80, and 100 hectoliters per hectare. We are at about 30. Uh, they are fermented in stainless steel tank with cultured yeast. My concept was new oak, a gentle little bit of new oak, um, uh, white yeast fermented or partly white yeast fermented uh, Pinot Blanc which can age better and then a, a longer contact on the, on the yeast but just having more uh, more creaminess and, and more depth and uh, it's it's a grown up uh, Pinot Blanc it's not a, a easy drinking uh, uh, starters wine and you also recently planted some Pinot Noir yes that was uh, number two when I had the interview with my cellar master in uh, 2004, I said to him at the end of the interview, do you have a dream? And said, yes, I would love to create a great red wine and make it myself. So I said, it's exactly my dream and we hopefully can fulfill this dream. And um, so we planted 2007, the first vines of uh, Pinot Noir, uh, half French clones, half German clones in a part of the Abzberg vineyard, which is uh, among the hottest parts, where there was quite a substantial layer of soil on top of the blue slate soil. So the wines lacked a little bit of the typical Abzberg expression, like the very pronounced steely uh, minerality. So I thought it was we, we would be a good uh, part for Pinot, Pinot Noir. We made it very, very traditionally, um, hand-picked, very, almost like Viennosley. There was a lot of effort to get only the very, uh, the very clean fruit. We have to protect it more than the Riesling. So we have around our vineyards, we have fences against the wild boar. We have again inside, because Pinot Noir ripens earlier, a barbed wire fences against the wild boar. And then we have uh, nettings to protect uh, against the birds and the bees and the wasps. So it's really a little fortress. Then after picking, uh, we, we, we destem and we do start a fermentation of about three weeks. After fermentation, we uh, get the juice and, and do a gentle pressing. And then we fill into barriques, classic barriques, partly greenhouse uh, oak and partly French oak. So we have some preferred barrel makers, uh, cooperies in France. And uh, then they stay for the wine stay without any sulfur, without any, any treatment for 18 months in the barriques. Uh, then we do an assemblage and then we bottle. So this Now we have three vintages uh, uh, present, uh, a tiny little bit of 10. 11 was very good and uh, 12 was even better. 13, we didn't make any Pinot Noir red wine because uh, the color would be not as, as we have wished it. So we do, which I think will be interesting, a Pinot Noir sparkling wine. Oh, okay. So it will be probably Pinot Noir Rosé. Because you normally make a, a sect. Like a we do sect, and uh, we have a very good uh, um, friend who does excellent sect business, classically hand-riddled bottle fermentation, and uh, that's all about Pinot Noir. And 2014 was very successful. It even Riesling suffered from the rain, and Pinot Noir and Pinot Blanc were perfect and in very good health. So 
this will be. I'm looking very much forward to 2014 Pinot Blanc and Pinot Noir. But most of what you make is Riesling, and you make several different expressions of that. And how should I best understand that range? It's more or less the expression of nature. We don't want to interfere too much. Very often, if apprentices come to our home, they are quite um, disappointed because they can't learn so much. There's not so much technique, machinery, modern machinery in the cellar. So especially looking at Riesling, Riesling just prepares uh, itself. It's we, we, we do a very selective tasting. We do a crushing, not too long contact of, with the juice. And then we do a overnight uh, clearing of the must. And then we just wait up to, well, three weeks until the natural wild yeast fermentation starts. You just kind of use natural yeast on its own timeline and then you let it fall sediment-wise. Exactly. Fall then, clear. Then it, it, it can, it, it can uh, stay quite a long... There's one wine which, where, where the Riesling stays for two years on the lease. It's a special wine. It's, it's very unusual and, and it's only a small quantity. It's called uh, Abzweck Fusion. It's a wine where we experimented with Grünhaus Bricks uh, and they were 100% new and we fermented in the Bricks. High class, also the quality to complete dryness. And then for two years, the wine was left on the yeast. Nothing happened. We didn't do any batonnage, but the wine was uh, was on, on, on the yeast. And my, which is not a new expression, but my, my, my uh, name I found for it, fusion means it's a perfect fusion of the fruit of Riesling, the barrique, all the, 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 the tannin tastes, which are soft and not, not aggressive at all. Normally for me, Riesling and barrique is a controversy. Because tannin fights Riesling acidity. And in this case, it was a perfect melting together, a perfect fusion. And I love this wine. It's quite expensive. It's uh, the uh, special toy of many German uh, sommeliers of leading restaurants, of three-star Michelin restaurants. And they sell this wine for 50 euros uh, by the glass. But most of the Rieslings you make are either fermented in German large fooder or in stainless steel. Stainless steel, that's true. So our concept about Riesling is having a, a basic dry wine, then the, there's a middle class, which uh, should show the element, main elements of the single vineyards, like Herrenberg and Abzberg. And then the top quality is just a selection of old wine. So we call it Herrenberg or Abzberg old wine. So we have three different dry wines. That's what we do with the dry wines. We have one off dry wine, off dry Riesling, called Just Estate Riesling Weinherb in German. Which I like a lot. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just also the preferred wine of my family. My family is not drinking dry wines. They, just my, as my father, he didn't like them. Well, it's not that you don't make... I mean, I like the dry wines a lot too, but... I, I like them too. It, it's, yeah. it depends when you're drinking, drinking it. And uh, if you're um, a person with different moods, uh, you have to have different wines at different uh, times of the day and in the different days. And then we have, of course, the classic wines like Cabinet Spätleser Ausleser which uh, are really to be, it, it's, they, have the, they show the difference by different levels of real sweetness. And then going up to Ausleser wines, we are known to have uh, in good years like 2011, four or five different Ausleser qualities, which we show by cast numbers. So you bottle by fooder. We bottle by fooder. So, and this I think is, this really everybody accepts it. It's not something making the affair very complicated. Once you had five different cast numbered Ausleser in front of you, you would understand one wine may be uh, selected from fulbotritis, having a lot of honey and a lot of concentration. And the other wine may be harvested uh, with a little gentle frost. So it has a, a touch of ice wine. 
And uh, so the wines can be very different. So the different cast numbered Ausleses are very much recognized in your country, in, in Britain, for example, in Switzerland and in Germany. So they like it. And then it comes to the very rare wines like Bernosli, the Trockmann, is the nice wine, which is lice. And we fight every year very hard to get some, but it's only maybe 1% of the production. So with Auslesa, there's a real range of what an Auslesa can be in terms of how much botrytis is there. And instead of blending that range away into one wine, you'd rather bottle all the different spectrum if the vintage allows it. If there are real, of course, we make cuvées of wines which uh, resemble each other. So it's not, not uh, we don't want to people uh, drink five bottles until they see the, the difference between one and the other Auslesa. It should be really a special character, and we love love to have characters. And uh, the wines should have be should be characteristic. And nothing is more interesting like tasting the different cast numbered Auslese of '88, for example, and you can still see the differences how the wine was. I did rediscovered a very interesting term uh, in German called Jungfernwein. Have you heard of it? It means it's a, an, if you can translate it into English, it's a maiden wine. So it's just the first yield out of a young vineyard where, of course, the growing conditions uh, have to be ideal. Like, for example, we made a, a Jungfernauslese maiden wine out of Bruderberg 2009. So you've got all the nice flavors of a young Riesling, and you've got all the, the silkiness of a first yield. It's really something outstanding. I was standing in the, in, in the vineyard of Bruderberg uh, in, in, in November 2009. I said, this, there are small little seedless berries, which uh, have not the minerality, but which have all the concentration and silkiness of a real first yield. And uh, I remembered having uh, seen a, or, or, or tasted a, some, some uh, Jungfernwein, some, some maiden wines from the Rheingau, and there the term is forgotten all too. So when I brought it up as 2009 Budaberg Jungfernwein, everybody was very much surprised because everybody had for forgotten that this term existed. It's, it's not a legal term, uh, in the wine law, but I just labeled it on our additional triangular neck label. Budaberg Jungfernwein, it was declared by the very influential Frankfurter Allgemeine Magazine, the, the dessert wine of the year, and everybody liked it. But since 2009, I never had the chance to do a, a similar wine. You have to have enough rainfall the whole growing period that the young wines can produce something outstanding. And of course, yield has to be very low. And uh, this is a very special condition. I think maybe every 20 years I am able to make such a wine. But it's, it's a special wine. And everybody, after tasting the wine and hearing the story, understood it, said it's something special out of the German wine history. And uh, everybody liked it. So you arrive to take charge of the estate in 1981. Yes. Your cellar master is the previous cellar master, uh, Mr. Heinrich, who yeah. had about a 30-year career of both taking care of the cellar and the vineyards. Exactly. What was 1981 like for you? Well, it was an important year because our first child was born, my, my oldest daughter, Annelide. So this is extremely special for you, for the family. And um, it was uh, a bit of a nightmare because at the 28th of April, we had uh, a frost. The, all the shoots were already out. We had about one feet uh, long uh, Riesling shoots. It was a very early year. Bud break was uh, at the beginning of April. And we had a shock by frost and by um, almost 40 centimeters of wet snow. So all the young shoots were burnt. We were having, a, 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 well, my father was having a, a difficult time before because we had low yields in 77, 78, 79, and 80. 
and then the Frost 81. And I was thinking, one more year like this, and then we are done. So and then the miracle happened. Riesling is uh, a very, I think it's the most ingenious weed of the world because after all the young shoots had been burned, there was a second bud break. There are small secondary buds uh, at both sides of the, of the principal bud. And then we had some new shoots coming out and we had a very late harvest. So it was uh, end of November when we were finished. But uh, 81 is just tasting perfectly today. It's young, fresh, light, and still not at the point where you think it's perfect. But so maybe not the easiest vintage to start out on. No, it, was, it wasn't easy, but I think there's not really, uh, not almost there's hardly ever really easy vintages. But this is uh, yeah, challenging. Yeah, that, that is uh, the main thing. And uh, uh, I learned a lot. I started to, to visit uh, my first customers. I just learned what restaurants uh, needed. That my father did eventually, but not principally. I traveled through the whole of Germany, meeting all the new incoming uh, famous chefs, later on famous chefs, and discussed with them about pairing wine and food. And again, I learned a lot by traveling, and uh, it brought me far away from the family. 30 years ago, I had my first business trip to the United States, which I, I liked a lot, and seeing your country and seeing how Riesling is received. So that's a long, uh, year, um, lifelong learning process seeing the customers and then bringing their experiences back home and thinking could I change in winemaking or could I change, change in, 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 uh, with the grapes I grow something to meet the expectations of my customers. So what was the atmosphere of the different markets worldwide for the wines you were producing in the 80s? The, the good restaurants started in Germany and uh, there was a, a quite a small market for our wines in Europe. Uh, the traditional market was uh, Britain, I remember the first visit in an English restaurant. They said, "Sir, you have to know, uh, you don't have a trendy product." Well, that's always nice. <laughs> yeah. that, that's how it starts. <laughs> and I hear the sentence until today. And uh, although I have not a trendy product, I'm quite proud to have good sales in Britain. <laughs> so I mean, but, you sold to Buckingham Palace and stuff. Uh, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. There were some some funny stories about the Buckingham Palace. They bought many, many vintages of cabinet wines from Grünhaus. So that uh, I learned later on from a British wine merchant. And um, it was sometimes a little bit like a revolution. When we started, at, uh, I think it was 86, to sell some wine to Switzerland, it was positive because there was not a negative image for our wines. Nobody drank the Frauenmilch, nobody had cheap German wines. They hardly knew that there was wine growing in Germany. And then we, all of a sudden we arrived with fresh, uh, acidic, mineral, uh, light, elegant Riesling wines. And all of a sudden we gained uh, the attention of three different wine merchants and they did a, a great job to introduce our wines to the public. And uh, I like uh, Swiss people. They are interested, they are knowledgeable, they are modest, and they are uh, ready to pay quite a good price for a good Riesling. So it's a perfect customer, <laughs> you could imagine. The last part makes up for a lot, I, I can only imagine. Yeah. <laughs> but what about the United States? What was the reception in the 80s for your wines here? Great. Uh, uh, you know, my father, he what he did, really did, he liked to travel abroad. So he was uh, traveling uh, in the United States. We had no exclusivity in those times. And I, my first trip took me uh, three weeks and I was traveling with a whole group of, of German wine growers from New York to San Francisco, from Alaska, 
to Texas. Uh, we made a really, it, it made me a great impression of your country. This was one of a, a very, very important impression. And it was well received. People knew the wine. They knew the books of Duke Johnson. They knew the classic books of uh, Frank Schoonmaker. Uh, there was uh, still a lot of li literature about German wines. And we were always considered, even in those times, to be one of the classic producers of Germany. So One of the best. Uh, the classic at least <laughs> but uh, so uh, the people knew about the wine so it was not completely new so it's uh, uh, i think still thinks uh, america is one of those countries which has the largest number of really educated wine connoisseurs unfortunately none of them are here today to do this interview i apologize <laughs> no, but what about inside germany what was the perception over the years from the 80s 90s 2000s of of the wines to the domestic audience uh, of course uh, if you go to munich for example there is a, a certain dominance of franconia and of italy italian now, nowadays of italian and of uh, austrian wines is that true so inside germany it's actually in, in, popular in munich to... you have a hard time selling the wine at the beginning 30 years ago it was okay I uh, had the, the big, the Grand Hotels, they used to have always a classic you know, wine list of uh, all the German, Germany in those times. You had Mosel, Saar and Ruwer and you had Franconia and Rheingau and so on. So they were always uh, the uh, most important places to sell our wine. Uh, Grand Hotels like Munich for seasons, they like to have uh, all the classic wines. It's, it's different now. It just was in the same uh, hotel uh, a couple of weeks ago and now you have... Uh, Mainly, mainly Italy, mainly a little bit of Franconia, a lot of Austria, and they seem to have forgotten about classic German wine-growing regions. Because I do see a lot of Germans in Italy, especially in northern Italy. When I travel to Italy, I see a lot of German. Yeah, that's true. And, and Italy is a young success story. About fifteen years ago, a young man from Netherlands who married an Italian girl, he, he went there, and now he's selling uh, a lot of wine uh, to, to uh, restaurants, uh, inotecas and wine bars. And I think it's uh, really interesting that there are some young people from Sicily owning a wine bar come to Grünhaus and enjoy the countryside and, 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 and like the wines. So from Rimini, from Rome, even from Alto Adige, they come uh, and, and, and visit us. They have cheap flights coming up. And uh, they take advantage to know where the wines grow. And uh, that's a new tourism from Italy and from Spain, for example, coming to Germany and looking at the wine country. So half of your production is dry Riesling. Yeah. About half of what you make. And I don't know if that's fluctuated over the years, but I know that there tends to be, at least more recently, more interest in dry Riesling inside of Germany than maybe in the States, right? Uh, yes, of course. It was always the most important market for dry wines. I remember very well in the year 80-82, we had about 85% of the production, of the total production being dry. Oh, really? So it was yeah. quite a bit more in It, the it was more. And now it's going back a little bit because uh, and now, what I thought was quite uh, negative that uh, quite a generation of German wine writers were extremely negative against any little bit of real sweetness. Oh, is that true? Yeah. So there were really, there was some some bad bad words like drinking jam or something drink marmalade. So some people were extremely negative. Uh, they forgot all about the tradition of great German wines not being only sweet but being juicy and and fruity and having uh, lots of minerality. So um, in those times, even if they had uh, spicy food, they always drank dry wine, and um, this really uh, spoiled all the generation of wine drinkers. 
because they thought, no, I have to be uh, hands off from from uh, from sweet wines. Everything which, which is sweet is negative. So in those times, they really separated the public, and of course, the wine lovers, the wine connoisseurs, the collectors still went on uh, uh, buying uh, good Spätlese and good Auslese wines. But uh, for this time, there was it was just all the height of of, of dry wines. Nowadays, I'm quite happy that you more and more good restaurants ask you if if you can deliver it to them for some older cabinets or some older spätlese to decorate their wine list and to have perfect matches for the food, which in Germany also is a sort of a fusion cuisine. Many elements like the Asian cuisine uh, are in the in, in in the main recipes, and then the wines don't work with uh, dry wines. It was in your country in Atlanta. I remember it very well. Twenty years from now. An American, I forgot her name, unfortunately, female food writer, who sat with me at the dinner table and said, young man, I will teach you about spicy food and wine. And she showed me that extremely spicy food, Thai food, which was served there, just ruined the wines. Didn't work at all. And then going up to a cabinet level, sweeter cabinet level or speed little level, she showed me that those wines are very nice, can be very nice partners for spicy food. And that was my first lesson because we don't have so much spicy food in those times that spicy food and riesling with moderate sweetness is perfect so it reinforced to you viscerally that it was worthwhile to make some cabinet spate lace outside so when maybe you weren't hearing that much on the domestic market yeah i always liked it and i think it was it, it will it is and will be a very important part of our business there's no other wine in the world which is so light seven to eight percent of alcohol being so refreshing and having such an outstanding potential to age like uh, 30 years and more. So it's showing you a 30-year-old cabinet and or spitly is, is an easy thing and it's not showing off, it's just wines, which is perfect to drink. And the older they get, the more uh, versatile they are with food. And you would think that in a cooler part of the Mosul and the river, that you might ride that razor edge even more finely than in some other areas where you can have that really genuine cabinet that lower alcohol wine exactly it's just it it well it's 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 traditional for the mosul of course and if you see now the uh, leading estates from um, rheinhessen and Rhein-Pfalz, you hardly see any cabinet now they have quite uh, substantial uh, rieslings which mainly i dry i won't tell you the name but today we had a very nice uh, gentleman i like him a lot and his wife he producing great, great wine but only 100 percent dry wines and the father of this gentleman was together with me in Switzerland last year, and he just uh, tiptoed over to my uh, to, to my table, said, "You know, my son, he doesn't uh, like to, to produce any dry wines. I would love to taste all your cabinets and all your spätli and all your auslese." So, in very large areas of Rheinhessen, there is no uh, cabinet anymore and no spätlese. Maybe a, a Bernauslese or Tockmannauslese as a rich dessert wine, but they don't produce any any sweeter wine anymore. So uh, that's more and more uh, the domain of uh, elegant, light uh, um, wines like Cabinet and Spätlese is the Mosel. In the Ruver, where you are, what have been the significant vintages to you since the 80s? What do you really remember? What's been surprising? What have been the vintages that stand out? Well, of course, I have to confess all the vintages where my children, our children were born are very <laughs> outstanding. And we are celebrating two weddings this year. So... My two sons uh, will marry and they have vintages like 83 and 86 and they are outstanding. Very nice, very different. And 80, uh, 89, uh, the vintage of my youngest daughter. So they are outstanding and they are 
luckily is among the best of the 80s. So, um, um, but it's interesting. Maybe that, you should have more kids. Huh? Uh, you know, well, more, more no, great I, vintages. Uh, no, I have grandchildren. And <laughs> yeah, I, right, right. Uh, I collecting their <laughs> vintages or, or laying back huge quantities. But you know, uh, the time change, which is for me really a climate change, at the end of the 80s, beginning of the 90s, showed us how different vintages can be. The three glorious vintages: 88, 89, and 90. This was interesting because they're totally different. 88, the must weights were quite low. But wines had a beautiful minerality. And if you would choose my favorite uh, vintage, just without thinking too much, out of the 80, uh, of the, out of the, the last uh, 30 years, I would think 88 is my beloved vintage, which has a lot of minerality. And the wines seem ageless. They taste almost the same like they tasted when, uh, shortly after bottling. So a lot of minerality, and that's just the greenhouse character. Very elegant, very refined. Then 89 was completely different, rich botrytis. So it was a, very nice to see botrytis. And it was after 76, the first real botrytis vintage. So lots of botrytis, even in, in a cabinet. Very attractive, still very well drinking, not overloaded by botrytis, but still elegant. And then a complete different again, 90, with lots of minerality, but the wines had a lot of power. So even the cabinets had a little bit more than 8% of volume, they had 10. So they were powerful yeast and a powerful year. So it's a very food-worthy wine. So three vintages, completely different, but all very, very attractive. So I like to show them those three vintages side by side. And this brought us to the fact that man-made climate change had really quite an impact on us. You started to see it as early as the late 80s. Yes, I think this was for me just as... We didn't uh, see uh, uh, any records of three outstanding vintage following each uh, after each other. And now that's somewhat common. In the 2000s, you saw a lot of outstanding vintages following yeah, each other. Yeah, but 2000 was uh, different because it was quite cold. So, uh, But I mean like 01, 02, then maybe 04. Yeah, of course. You know what yeah. I mean? There was a lot yeah. in that decade where they were pretty good. And this brings me to the point, then if people ask me what is a great vintage, uh, in my eyes, a great vintage is a vintage if, if it gives you the real expression of what you are as a wine grower and what you can produce, like 88, for example. It's a vintage with a great aging potential, which can hold a long, long half a lifetime and be perfect afterwards. And not as many journalists think it's a great impression just from the very beginning. In vintages like 2005, for example, people were so much, much enthusiastic about the vintage and they said it's one of the greatest in the last 50 years. And they didn't see it. It was a very warm vintage and the wines will develop quickly. And a, a year like 2004, which is um, considered to be a moderate vintage, not very good, they will survive all the wines of 2005. And that's very important, the difference. What is great? Is it great impression or is it great potential? So what have been your favorites from the 90s and the 2000s and even up to now? I mean, it seems like 11 was quite good for you. I mean, yeah, uh, from, the uh, from the 90s, uh, uh, very attractive is uh, 93 because it was completely different to all the other vintages. 93, we had in the middle of the month of uh, October, a frost killing half the leaves. So what happened, I never experienced it before and afterwards. The um, acidity level stayed the same didn't didn't uh, weren't reduced by the activity of the leaves but the must weights went up so 93 is still extremely young um extremely attractive 
and still has this taste of a little bit more the malic acidity than the tartaric acidity. So the 93 is something which is for us very young and very attractive. So it's And it was a t completely different situation than you ever experienced it. Now we're talking about 95. Many journalists ask you uh, about wines which are 20 years old. And uh, I was a little bit, um, well, disappointed because they needed extremely long time to open up. And this uh, spring, uh, there was uh, some journalists which write, I think, the best um, newsletter for German wines came and wanted to taste 95. And now 95 is just The, the flower is open and the wines are just perfect now to drink. So 95 is a rediscovery. Sometimes really, even me, I forget about vintages. If they don't uh, show well after 10, after 15 years, then you tend to forget about it. And the good thing is you have some left, something left and you can just sell some wines and, and present those wines. So uh, 95 was my biggest uh, surprise in the last years being an outstanding vintage. 96 is very attractive too, 97 perfect, uh, 98. Uh, 99 was uh, kind of a problem because it was so rainy and a, a huge quantity. Yeah, and then we are to the next century. I think 2003 is uh, for sweeter wines, perfect vintage to develop. Uh, first uh, of all, it was overrated, then it was underrated, and now people discover that Cabinet and Spätli uh, wines of 2003 are perfect. Um, 2004 is uh, the first vintage of our new Cellemaster, drinking very well, especially Cabinet and Spätlese, elegant and, and perfect, just uh, balanced. They are light without being lightweights. Uh, five was overrated because some of the fives, uh, especially the dry wines, already get very, very old and, 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 and uh, they age quicker. The same to uh, 2006. And 2007, those three vintages were having a long ripening process and they were very attractive as the, as the use, but they, some of the wines, the lighter wines, developed very quickly. And what about 11? Do you like it as well or is it just me? No, I like it a lot. 2011 was um, quite unusually having extremely high must weight. So it's the first time I experienced that the average must weights counting in the German terms like Oxley degree, you had more than 100 Oxley degrees as an average must weight. This was the highest must weight I ever recorded in my estate, giving me on one hand very powerful dry wines. So maybe if people said, you know, German wines uh, or Mosul wines are too weak to be nice uh, at the side of Mediterranean cooking, that was, you could show those people, it has a lot of power and can be perfect for I still like them as a dry wine, although they don't have the eternal age, aging potential. And then, of course, you have the Cabinet and the Spätlese, the Auslese wines, which have uh, uh, a very nice uh, dessert wine character, especially Spätlese and Auslese. So whenever you have a rich dessert, you need a, um, a wine which has enough sweetness. And in many years, like the following years, uh, 12, 13, and 14, you had elegant Auslese, which were more drinking Auslese, but not the perfect mattress for dessert. So 2011 is a rich dessert wine vintage. And to be open, uh, if you have low yields like 13 and 12 and 14, you need a good vintage like 2011 in your back to survive. Oh, I see. So once again, you faced a series of low yielding vintages like your father had faced and like you. Yeah, it, oh, it, it comes back, unfortunately. And uh, as, as wine is perfectly uh, conserving and, and, The quality is getting even better. 
Uh, I was very happy to sell the last cabinet wines of uh, and the wines of 2011 this year. And they gave me enough money to pay the wages uh, to start the year, which was difficult. So that's important. You have to have uh, always a mix of different uh, vintages to be able to to survive. And I think it's also, also attractive for the customers that they have a choice. And it's not only the youngest vintage they have to buy. And when they forgot to buy, forget to buy after a few months, the wine is gone and you have to go somewhere else to get it. So even in these days of climate change, it's still hard to predict what's going to happen vintage to vintage. Yeah, that's true. It's true. It, uh, the change is, at the beginning, I was a little bit naive thinking um, global warming is something from uh, wine growers in the Ruva Valley because you don't uh, have uh, uh, too much catastrophes like we had in 80, for example, where there was almost none uh, harvested. Uh, I thought must weights are much more better than they used to be. We don't have to capitalize anymore because uh, the natural wine is, is strong enough. But uh, then we have to face facts like 2014 when the best time to pick the grapes is only 14 days, which is too, too small, the, the period, because we need more time. So uh, then this brings us to the fact that we have to invest heavily, new presses, more pickers to be very, very fast and getting the grapes in. So... This is also, can be also negative. Riesling is also sensible to rain uh, in, in, in the fall, and then we have no, not much time to, to get the, the good fruit in. So the whole timetable has really changed and sometimes is much more condensed. Yeah, that's, that's a real big challenge. That's, uh, and we have new illnesses uh, to, to face. We have uh, this little uh, fly from Japan. Uh, China, I think. Chinese fly. Fruit fly? Uh, it's, it's, it's called uh, Drosophila suzuki Oh, it's oh a so f- that sounds it, like Japan. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's really, and this comes uh, to Germany, uh, and it came to to Italy and to France. Luckily, Riesling is not uh, the, uh, not really affected, and if you treat your Pinot Noir properly, I think you can avoid it. That's interesting because uh, also in Italy, they found that certain grape varieties are less susceptible than others. Like, Those soft grape varieties with quite a soft skin, they can be affected more, but. If you work like getting away the shades from the from the grapes so that the skins can be uh, under the direct uh, contact with the sun can get harder, it helps. In Italy, they don't want to have it because then the wines uh, get too much color on the one hand or they get too, too much phenolic touch. But in our uh, region, we do it. The wine growers, make, we make our Pinot, Pinot Noir naked and then if sunshine touches the skins, it, uh, it it doesn't is a big problem, but we have other other fungus diseases which come from the Mediterranean, like Esca, which kill two to four percent of our wines per year, and uh, that's, it's a little bit uh, funny feeling that so many new challenges come. That a little bit too many just now. How did you see the change from your older cellar master, Mr. Heinrich, to Mr. Camille, the current cellar master? What uh, if any changes happened? Well, it's uh, it's a sort of rebooting the whole estate, meaning that you thought about everything. At the end, we came back to tr- many traditional methods, but what can be made modernly, like uh, having new presses and uh, a new, a, a very clean equipment, uh, which helps you to work uh, efficiently and uh, very properly, this was done. And, uh, you know, I, I studied about the uh, steeple, economics of steeple wine growing, so we have all the new capable tractors uh, and machinery which you can have outside in the vineyard to work the vineyard with as little people as possible because we have now to face minimum wages in Germany from the 1st of January this this year. 
and we have to pay 30 to 40 percent more for our pickets which come from the eastern uh, european countries so we have to reduce hand labor otherwise we have to uh, we, we go out with prices which nobody likes i mean that's a trend that's come up before your grandfather did the same thing he employed a lot of mechanization in terms of yes of course trains in the vineyard and locomotives and moving of things and uh, electric uh, power that was self-generating and so there's a history of trying to use more technological advances at the estate, right? Yeah, you always, but we have to reinvent the estate almost every generation to, to find out the best possible. And uh, I think it's always important, as I told you, to, to see what the market needs, to see what you're willing to, to, to do for the market, and uh, then bring this into the technique of winemaking and, 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 and growing outside in the vineyard. So it's always a constant circle around about the ideas you get from other growers, the, the needs you, you hear from your sommeliers and uh, the needs, uh, well, just the natural situation in the vineyard that gives you a constant feedback, what you can do better. And uh, you have to be really open your eyes and listen what people say to you then so that you don't produce something and nobody wants to, to buy. You've been there since 81. How do you see it progressing to the next generation of the family? What's, uh, what's going to happen ahead? So my son will take over his name is maximin oh. <laughs> so easy first name it's just the real and he will take over in a few years at least i hope that we be a good team for as long time as possible he already had his first project he we, we created a new wine called maxim a simple drinking riesling uh, light and crisp and uh, made for young people in, in trendy restaurants so we just uh, had the first uh, bottling we did we just did the first bottling a few weeks ago and uh, he was uh, some uh, designers in Berlin did the label. He's, it was only him. So it is his first baby. And uh, now we are very eager and, and uh, full of excitement how this project uh, goes on. And you're also a hunter and you make different canned goods from that, different pâtés and goulashes, right? Yeah, that's true. It's not, not only canned goods. We, we have, when I started hunting um, in Greenhouse, it was about uh, shooting three uh, wild boar per year. And now also following global warming, uh, nowadays it's 60 to 80. That means we have to find a good way to market those. So we started, uh, as, as we have um, friends in Tuscany, they have lots of wild boar. And they said, why don't you produce a nice prosciutto di cinguale, like a wild boar prosciutto, salami, different types of salami we produce. That was the first time I remember my little son Maximin sitting at the uh, in our in our kitchen and and uh, putting the wild boar salami into vacuum bags. Uh, this is not now the production is too high. We can't do it ourselves anymore. We do have a local restaurant, an excellent restaurant, who does a, a pate of wild boar. So it's a, a secret recipe. They do it for us exclusively. So that's a canned product, and uh, then we do some uh, um, also some goulash in cans. So that's it's. I think uh, those this venison is very precious although the prices in Germany have gone down. So I want to sell it as a precious product. So I sell it on my own, on my normal mailing list. So about eight different wild boar products exist. So it's a little, not important, but it, a little extra business in greenhouse. And we do some honey, which is produced by bees, which fly into our vineyard. So that seems, it shows that they have no pesticides in the vineyards and the bees can just spread out and, and have no danger. Thank you very much, Carl von Schubert. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk a little bit about my wine and my life. It's my life, the wine.
Carl von Schubert of Maximilian Grunhaus and the Ruver. Thank you very much. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.